Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the sixth and final week of our series on Matthew 12 called Not My Messiah. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. We've been on Sunday mornings. We've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew. And, and really the last handful of weeks in Matthew chapter 12, the kind of the big theme has been, you know, the religious leaders of the day, they were saying they were looking for a Messiah. They were talking about that idea. But yet when Jesus came and he gave evidence of being the Messiah, they basically came back and said, that's not the Messiah we're looking for. That's not, that's not our Messiah. That's not what we want. And they rejected him and, and, and even tried to, you know, have other explanations and, and tried to say, okay, well, through our faith and our religion, we can fix things. And, and you see Jesus responding to that because he is the ultimate source of truth. And, and so this morning we're going to be looking at the end of Matthew chapter 12, uh, Matthew 12, verses 43 through 50. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up and to keep it open through our time so you could follow along and, and with the passage and see where the points come from. Uh, if you don't, there's one in front of you. We'd invite you to use the Bible that's there. But let me begin by reading this passage we're going to be looking at this morning, Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 43. When the, Jesus, this is a parable that he spoke. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes and it finds the house empty, swept and put in order, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first, so it will also be with this evil generation. And while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to them. But when he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have to come this morning. Father, again, to be able to dive in your word. Thank you for the truths that are here. Father, for the principles that, that you call us to be able to understand and to be able to apply to our own lives. Father, I thank you for the way that you continue to teach me. And I pray now that you get me out of the way. And Father, that you would speak through me and in spite of me to to communicate your truth to our hearts. Father, help each one of us to be open to hear what you may have for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, many of you might be aware of and familiar with the whole organization Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, it's a program that has helped you know, countless people deal with substance abuse uh, and alcohol, not only alcohol, but you've had you know, narcotics and you know, different uh, you know, variations of this that, that have helped all kinds of people over the years. Alcoholics Anonymous was actually started in 1935 here in Akron, Ohio. And uh, you had two men, uh, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith, who were recovering alcoholics who somehow connected to each other and then began meeting together to help each other in their recovery. And in the process, they developed some, some steps, some ideas. And in 1939, they published the book, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, and you know, it's often referred to the people that are in the organization as the big book. And it was this idea that it laid out these 12 step, this 12 step program. Now, both of these men had become Christians and they attributed their sobriety to their faith in God. And, uh, and really, they even talked about the idea that this was really basically the principles of coming to trust in Christ and the 12 step program really in, in many ways is based on the Bible. It's just the principles of what it means to surrender to Christ and especially in that one area and then growing through Christian discipleship. Now, initially, one of the men, uh, Bill Wilson, 
struggled when people started to talk to him about the gospel. And, and he said that part of the reason was he was, uh, had experience in a church that, that taught a lot of wrong ideas about God. So he had a, a picture in his mind of God that was very angry and judgmental. And, and, uh, and because of that, he really struggled. And, and so because he was aware that there might be others who would have that same baggage, when he wrote the 12 steps, he tried to talk about God in very general terms. So for example, if we take the original uh, 12 steps, the first three steps, you see this. Uh, look what he says, the first step, we admitting that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. The second step, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The third step is we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Now basically what he was trying to do was to get people thinking about the idea of God. And even if you've got that baggage, start moving towards God and then as you go through the process, the goal would be that you would learn about the God of the Bible and the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. Now for those who you know, are committed to the Bible and you look at this, you see that history. And there's a lot of, of, of ministries that have taken this idea of the 12 steps and made it even more explicitly Christian. And because and, really what it is, it's talking about saying, here are these ideas, here's how we apply the gospel to the, each area of our struggle. This is how we grow in discipleship. In fact, one of, at our church, we have a men's group, a men's uh, recovery group, discipleship group called Galvanized. And it's really, a, again, a, a ministry, a great group that's, that's in large part built on the ideas of these 12 steps. And it's not just about recovery from substance abuse, it's actually about saying, how do we deal with and recovery as men have a support system with anything that we deal with. And so for some, it might be substances. For some, it's, well, addiction to pornography. For others, it's, I just can't get over my anger or whatever it would be. I mean, it's a wonderful group that I would highly recommend. It's, it meets on, for any men that are interested, it meets on Thursday evenings down in the chapel down there, 7 to 8.30. Uh, you could just show up. If you'd like more information, you could talk or, or, or call or text Tom Hutchinson. Here's his contact information or email. And, uh, but again, it's a great, great ministry that I would highly recommend. Now, the thing is, is that while AA and the 12 steps were built on these biblical principles, over time, what has happened is that more of the groups have, have, have denied it. You know, they, they started, you know, started out Christian-based, but they're like, well, but we don't really believe in God. And, and in fact, many, I looked online and I saw all these different uh, groups that, that really advertise we're not religious. We won't talk about God in our groups. Now, what do you do with these the ideas talk about higher power and God. And, and what many of these leaders will do is that they'll talk about, well, a higher power, that could be anything that you make it to be. Whatever, whatever's your higher power. In fact, I remember talking to someone once and he was telling me that he decided his higher power was his motorcycle. Now, I don't know how a motorci motorcycle is a higher power than himself. It can go faster than him, but that's about it. I don't know how it can help him defeat his addiction. That's what he chose. Now, I kind of think that because it's not very powerful, it probably didn't help him a whole lot in the long run. Um, but the thing is, is that you look at this and you say, as people go that direction, it raises a question. When you look at history and, and the role of God and faith and how essential it was in the founding of the 12 steps of AA, the question is this, is a belief in God essential and foundational, not only to AA, but to having success or will a program work for people who totally remove God, for an atheist who goes through the 12 steps denying God? 
Now, I've thought about that question. I've talked to people over the years, believers and unbelievers, and I'm going to tell you, I think the answer to the question is yes. And you're like, well, what do you mean? Well, well, I think in a sense, a belief in God is essential and foundational, not only to AA, to the 12 steps, but to success. But at the same point, it's possible for someone who denies God to go through the program and to have at least some level of success. Now, you might say, well, that's contradictory. Well, it's actually not. Because what we're gonna see, even what we're talking about today, is that sometimes these issues are not that simple. They're, they're actually more complicated. And, and sometimes we can confuse kind of secondary and primary things. See, on the one hand, I would say that faith in Jesus Christ, is the power of the gospel is the only thing that has the power to transform hearts and lives. It, 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 it's, it's unlimited in its power. And what you see is that a lot of times when we have an addiction, the Bible talks about it, we're slaves to sin. That's something that is a powerful hold and there's nothing that we can do of our own strength to break that addiction. The power of the gospel has the power to set us free. But on the other hand, you look at it and you say, there are a lot of strategies that can have some degree of helping us change, at least in the short run. Now, if you're not sure what I mean, that's kind of an introduction to what, some of what we're going to be looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 12. It's not only dealing with ideas to say, how do we overcome addiction, but how do we deal with any struggle, with any issue in life that, that spiritually that we're struggling with? Now, we read the verse a few minutes ago, and again, I'm going to acknowledge it's a pa- tough passage, this parable, especially in verses 43 through 45, and, you know, this, this you know, about, um, you know, the demon and evil spirits and but part of what it's teaching to start, we've got to start by understanding the Bible teaches that we have God-designed complexity. Again, let me read these verses and, and we're going to kind of see this play out. In verse 43, when the unclean spirit had gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest but, and finds none. And then it says, I will return my home from which I first came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. And then it goes and it brings with it seven spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of the person is worse than the first. Now here you have Jesus talking about this idea of evil spirits that can some degree, you know, indwell or possess or control people's lives. And you say, okay, what's that talking about? Well, we've got to remember the context of this. Jesus didn't just jump to this out of the blue. It actually is in response to an event that happened several verses before in Matthew chapter 12 and that has been part of this whole interaction with the religious leaders. Back in 22, we're told that there was a man who we're, we're told was uh, demon-oppressed that was brought to Jesus and, and look what, we, what happened. And when a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And, and now, some of this, we might be looking at this and you might be saying, okay, you know, here is a demon-oppressed man and Jesus is talking about evil spirits. And there are some people that will look at that and say, well, wait a second, that's, that sounds strange. You know, here's this, you know, demons. I mean, that's, is, that, is that kind of like a pre-scientific age? And some people say, well, back then, well, they didn't understand science and they didn't understand sickness. And so they just, they just everything was, was spiritual. Everything was a demon. Now, let me remind you, first of all, this is Jesus speaking here. He's the creator, he's the designer, and we can't say, well, he didn't understand biology. He created biology. And so when he says that it's a demon, a spirit, evil spirit, yes, Jesus said there are evil spirits that can impact us. 
Not only that, but when you look at Jesus' whole ministry, if you go throughout the gospel, what you find is in his ministry, he deals with all kinds of people and he distinguishes between those that are sick or sad or that are demon-possessed. He doesn't treat everyone like they're demon-possessed. See, what you see is that the Bible teaches that we're, we're body, soul creatures, that we're complex, multifaceted. And it talks about this, in, for example, in Ephesians, Paul says this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, he's not saying that we don't wrestle at all against flesh and blood, that we don't deal with any spiritual or physical issues. He's really saying we don't deal with only flesh and blood. There's something more. And again, the idea is that we are multifaceted body, soul creatures that we've got to look at, you know, that we're not just spiritual being, beings that have a spiritual part, we're not just physical beings, but that we're, um, you know, they're, they're defined by science, you know, that we are body and soul. Now, it's possible to have a simplistic view. We'd have a simplistic spiritual view of things so that some people would look at it, everything is a demon. Uh, an example of that is you could go back to the Salem witch trials. I mean, everything was a demon. Every problem was a demon. They saw a demon behind every tree. That was simplistic. It was false. But what we find, I think, more common in our day and age is that we have people that are looking at a simplistic, materialistic view of the world so that everything is physical. We ignore the spiritual side of life. We don't see, a, a, you, know, a, you know, spiritual powers. And so everything is flesh and blood causes. And so, for example, you know, we look at that and we say, well, everything is the result of unjust social systems or uh, systemic racial injustice or bad parenting or bad, bad brain chemistry. And so basically, if you find the physical root and you treat it with some physical cause, something that is natural, that is controllable, we can fix everything. And what we need to realize is that, no, our modern world says that everything is physical. A spiritual view is that we are body, soul creatures. And so that's where, again, we, are, we do not wrestle only against flesh and blood, but also against these rulers and against the authorities. That's part of the battle here. Now, as far as a Christ, we need to remind, be reminded of this and resist that simplistic view of the world, a materialistic culture, especially now. And so when we look at that, we've got to say, okay, you know, it's real possible. We have an addiction, and what do we try to do? Well, we just say no. We just, you know, well, I can remove God and just do it by my own ability. Or, you know, we can deal with porn and, well, I just try to stop it or I'm just going to try to make myself forgive the person. And what we're going to see is that, no, there's a spiritual element here. And it's, and it's, you know, it's not just even saying, well, God, I'm going to do it or God, help me to do it. But there's a spiritual renewal. See, now in that, while we are body, soul creatures, we can some degree ignore part of that and focus on a part. Now, here's what's happening in our culture. We can ignore the spiritual and we can go to purely the materialistic. Does it work? Sometimes, to a degree? Because in a sense, there are many ways to accomplish some change. You know, we can, we can, you can, you can have a problem and I take the medicine and it, it, it works for a little while. I can, you know, go through the 12 steps without God and it might work to a degree for a while. There's some change. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 12. And let's go back, we remember in verse 22, we saw the story of the, the man, or, or that Jesus healed this man that was demon oppressed. Now what's interesting is right after that, most of the people are watching that and they said, man, that's the power of God, that's God's power, they're attributing to, to God. 
but the religious leaders didn't want it to be from God. They didn't want to believe that Jesus was God, so they had to find some other power to attribute it to. So they basically said, well, no, he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. Now, Jesus responds to that, and he gives them a couple arguments, but let me look at one. In verse 27, look what he says. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And Jesus is basically saying, okay, some of you cast out demons. And if you're saying that you only cast out demons by the power of Satan, well, does that mean that you're using the power of Satan? And again, they didn't have an answer to that. Now, here's what I want you to see. Think about this for a minute. What Jesus is saying is that the Pharisees were casting out demons. How did they do that? Okay, it wasn't by Satan's power. It wasn't by God's power. They were denying God's power. They were denying who Jesus was. So how did they do it? Here you have these legalistic, self-righteous, judgmental people who twisted the teaching of the Bible, and yet some of them were able to cast out demons. How? So the matter of the fact is, in the short run, we can go to a lot of different you know, religions and philosophies and theories, and we can see some results. In fact, you hear all kinds of people that will share some testimonies. There are different, we share testimonies here, but I've heard other religions, people talk about, well, I believe this, and it made a difference in my life. I've heard people that are the atheists that have been part of AA and said, well, I rejected God, but the 12 steps helped change me. I've heard you know, non-Christians go to a non-Christian psychologist, and they don't believe in God at all, and they talk about how the psychologist helped solve problems in their life. You can have all these ideas, even ideas that are totally contradictory, and, some, and all of them can say, provide some level of freedom, some level of deliverance. Why? Because we are multifaceted, and what they're trying to do is that they're looking at a part of it, they're treating a part of it, and it might seem to fix it, but it's only fixing a part. Let me even give another illustration. We have a lot of struggle now with depression, so you hear a lot about that. Okay, what causes depression? We can be simplistic. The biologist says, well, it's chemistry. You need a drug. The moralist says, well, it's sin. If you're guilty of something, you just repent and you change, you know, you're going to feel better. The psychologist says, well, it's because you have some past wound in your experience. You just got to deal with that and release that. You know, the superstitious says, well, it's a demon. You need to cast it out. Which one is it? See, it might be many of those things. And what we need to realize is that we are multidimensional and and that you can look at one part and you can get some of the solution. But in this, what you're often doing is that there are partial cures that are that are often usually dealing with the symptom. They're dealing with the symptom. They're making the symptom better, but they're not dealing with the core issue. Or, or you find a solution that worked here and now you're trying to apply it broadly and it doesn't work. Well, I tried this and I mean, let me even give an illustration of that, a personal illustration. I, so many of you know, I've shared before, I'm not the most handy guy in the world. I don't know how to fix a lot of things. Um, you know, I try to do the best I can. Sometimes my fixing actually can make things worse. Um, and, and, you know, some of, I'm, I'm, as I share this, some of you are going to say, you didn't do that. You know, if, if you're young and you don't know, learn from me, you don't have to make this mistake. Um, we had a problem with a black, backed up sink in our house you know, some time ago. And, and, and some, you know, I got a plunger. I'm trying to plunge it. Didn't work. I've got a little snake. I tried that. It didn't work. And so I'm thinking, hey, I've had problems with backup sink in my bathroom before, so I just put some Drano in there and that cleared it out. So that sounds like it would work. Um, well, this would go in the category of it helps to read the directions first. 
Uh, the problem is I'm a man and I don't read directions. I mean, if it was like two lines, I would read it, but they make it really tiny and so that, you know, it's like all this thing. How do you find the one thing that actually applies to you in this whole list of directions? And, but they tell you don't do that. Well, and here's why, because bathroom sinks, you know, the clogs are, are oil and hair and things, and there's an acid in like Drano that dissolves that and, and clears the drain. Now, kitchen sinks are clogged by food, and the, and the acid in Drano doesn't clear that out. I didn't know that. It would have been nice to know beforehand, but, but, but here's what happened. Yeah, I pour it in, it doesn't do anything, and it sits there, and it is like an acid. Now, what I didn't realize, when it sits there for a while, the acid starts to come back up and create fumes in the kitchen, so it's actually kind of dangerous, kind of like you don't want to be in there. So suddenly, I've not only not fixed the sink, I've ruined the whole kitchen. And now we got to call a, a, a plumber and kind of looks at me and like, you, did you really do this? You're that dumb? You know, it's kind of like now, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there and said, be, it, you know, it became more expensive. It was a whole problem. Now, why? Because I said, here's a problem. And I, I, if this works here, it should work here. And I don't really understand the problem. And there isn't a simple solution, not only for sinks, but more importantly, there isn't a simple solution to spiritual problems, to emotional problems, to relational problems. No, because we've got to understand it's not just the symptom. Not all clogs are the same. So we've got to look at it. We've got to say, what is the foundational need? And our foundational need is spiritual. Now, what we often see is we see the symptoms, which might be relational or emotional or financial, whatever it would be, but it's spiritual. That's what Jesus is teaching here in this parable in Matthew 12 when he talks about this unclean spirit you know, that goes out of the person, then it comes back and it says if he finds a house empty, he, uh, he swept and put in order, he goes and he brings back with it seven other spirits more evil than itself and they will enter and dwell there and the last state of the person is worse than the first. He's saying we can go and sweep our house through all kinds of things self-discipline and here's a, you know, here's a problem, whatever it would be. I can fix my house with all kinds of things but if I'm not addressing the spiritual need, what I'm doing is I'm just trying to empty myself of the problem and I'm leaving myself empty. And all, at the end of the day, the only way to have real victory is to have some kind of power within me that is more powerful than any invader. But do we understand the real issue? Okay, let me go to another illustration. Okay, if you go to the doctor, you generally go to the doctor with symptoms, right? I've got this pain, I've got this problem. Now, you want the doctor to make the symptoms better. If he just makes the symptoms better, has he cured you? Not necessarily. I mean, it would be a really bad doctor to say, here, let me just make you feel better without looking at the cause. So let's say, for example, I go in and I've got, well, I've got a pain in my gut. I was really bothering me. And, um, and he says, well, if you take this antacid and you take this painkiller, it's gonna make the pain go away. And so I try it and I thought, man, it does. This is great. Has he made me better? Well, what if that pain is a tumor that's growing inside of me? Now, he, I've looked at it, has, have the medications made the situation better? Has it driven away the evil problem? Well, in one sense, yes. If what I'm looking at is the problem is the symptom of the pain, well, I feel better, I'm not worried about it now. But in another sense, what is seemingly solving the problem is actually making it worse because it's covering up the pain, it's covering up the real problem, I'm, I'm putting faith in a false solution. And so the result is that I'm not now aware of this tumor growing inside of me until it may be too late to fix. Now in our life, we've got all kinds of presenting problems. 
you know, things again that, you know, brokenness with our you know, relationship and our marriage with our kids and our work and our finances, whatever it would be, we've got, you know, I'm struggling with this addiction, I'm struggling with this sin, whatever it would be. But we need to realize that those are symptoms. Now, I'm not saying that they're not problems. Again, if I come and I say, I've got this pain, that's a real problem. If I've got a problem in my marriage, that's a real problem. But at the end of the day, where do they all come from? It started with the fall. It started with a broken relationship with God. And all of those things are rooted in a broken relationship with God. And so we've got to say, okay, what are you trying to fix? And are you just trying to fix the symptom or are you trying to deal with the ultimate core issue? Now, I will hear people even say, but this is what works for me. I've tried this and this works. And, and okay, okay, well, let me ask, if it, does it, if it works for you, does it mean it's true? I hear people, they say, this is my truth. Again, there's a lot of things that will make things work in the short run. I can take a painkiller and it makes my stomach feel better. Does that mean it's true? Is it my truth? No. Again, I can have something that seems to work in the short run, but the ultimate thing is, do I really understand the real truth behind things? Even in Christianity, it's possible, well, I tried this and I tried this and I'm, I'm using God. See, again, even with Christianity, it's not true because it works. Now you say, wait a second, I thought it's true. Well, it is true, but it's not true because it works. Christianity isn't true because it works. It works because it's true. And because it states the ultimate truth, it's not only has the power of healing the symptoms, but it has the power of going deeper and healing the, our core need at the deepest root. So it's not just a help, self-help approach. It's not, you know, do this and make your life better. And you know, it's understanding that the core problem is spiritual. And if I understand the core problem is spiritual, I'm gonna understand the real nature of the struggle of what's going on here. Again, let's go back to this parable, 43. When the unclean spirit had gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it will find the house empty, swept and put in order. And then it goes and it brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they will enter and dwell there and the last state of the person is worse than the first. And what he's saying is it's possible to get our life in order, at least to some degree without Jesus. But it's also teaching that the soul abhors a vacuum. And that if all I've done is through my own power kind of get rid of that evil spirit, get rid of that problem, get rid of whatever I'm dealing with, that you know, through you know, self-reformation, through self-discipline, through whatever wisdom of the culture, of cult culture that ultimately I'm leaving myself in, in danger. See, Christianity is not defined by here's the sin that I've defeated. It's defined by I have a relationship with God. It's not just, okay, I'm, I'm forgiven and I've got, you know, I've got fire insurance, I'm going to heaven. No, it's that I've actually embraced this relationship with God where I've asked him to not only forgive my sins, but then to now come into my life and to become Lord of my life, to in a sense, move into the house and take over. And we need to re not only repent from the sin or remove the evil, but also embrace Jesus Christ as Lord, where it's a positive. It's not our self-control, it's not our self-will. Now, some people will even mix up Christianity and the Bible and they will try to take it as something that is like, well, it's, you know, it's, if you go this and here's what I'm doing and the Bible gives us ideas of how to do things better. And people will, will you know, take true biblical ideas and turn it into kind of self-help. Now, Bible ideas work. Bible principles, if you live by them, they work. 
but it's ultimately about fixing our relationship with Christ. Now, I'll give you an example of this. For this summer, uh, in July, when we have the VBS and, and, and show choir, we're gonna actually be doing a couple week series on parenting. So we're gonna be looking at, at Proverbs and, and uh, wisdom for parenting as parents, as grandparents. You know, how do we have wisdom to know how to be able to help our kids and, and raise them right? You know, parenting's hard, I know that. You know, we had, we had four kids, we had, we had four, they were all within five years. And so we, yeah, we went through a lot and it is, it, it can be tiring, it can be difficult, it's confusing, especially in our culture. Now, there are a lot of times people find, you know, here's a simplistic, I go on YouTube and I look at this and here's a solution. Well, it works for them, as simplistic, is it true? You know, I found one dad that was talking about, well, self-help and, and he said, you know, or, 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 you know, the need for time out. And he said, so he was suggested this method of time out. And, and I look at that and I said, okay, that may work for you, but it's not necessarily true. I wouldn't recommend it. I do love that he put the little stuffed animal in timed out too. And, uh, but as men, duct tape doesn't work for everything. Okay, so now what do we have? Well, in the Proverbs, we have wisdom. We have truth. It's teaching what is truth about the way that God created the moral fabric of our hearts, the way that God created the moral fabric of the world, and the more that we align ourselves with that truth, the more it works. So as a result, there can be people that will come in on those Sundays who may not have a relationship with God, who may not care about God, and will hear certain principles, and if they apply those principles, it will help them be better parents. As a culture, we used to talk about biblical morality in our schools and Ten Commandments and our culture was healthier when people believed those things even if they weren't followers of Christ. Now, while that is true, the deepest need is spiritual because I could have a child that I raise right and I help them be more productive, work harder, be more successful in life, but if they don't have a relationship with God, then the fact of the matter is I can raise somebody who's very competent in the culture, but still very broken in their hearts. They need to understand that no, our ultimate problem is we have a sin nature, that we have this relationship with God that is broken. Our ultimate identity is in a relationship with Jesus, where we understand that he's forgiven us and through our faith in him, we are loved and we are treasured by him. That's what our kids desperately need. Now principles apart from Christ will help, but if we don't teach these basic principles, they might help them in one way, but actually make them worse in another way. So we've got to go back and say, what is the gospel? The gospel is focuses not just on what we do, it focuses on who we are. You know, so it's not just about changing behavior. It's not saying, okay, here's a problem, here's how you clean the house, here's how you get rid of the problem. That's external. And, and we can use all kinds of external methods to try to change what we do, but it might change what I do. I might clean the house, but I don't fill it with anything. Basically, through these methods, it's basically, you know, it's, it's, it's my effort, I can, through self-help help and self-discipline, I can say no to certain things so I behave better, but I'm holding back the real me. And sooner or later, defenses are down and the real me comes out. God is concerned not just with our behavior, but our heart. He changes us from the inside out, transforming our character. And when we have a new heart, the result will always be changed behavior. It's not just you know, external, it's internal at the heart level. And it's defined not only by the absence of evil, but being filled with God. It's not what is taken out of the house, but it's what is then filled the house that really defines us. Think about it, the Christian character shouldn't be defined by the bad things we don't do. It should be defined by the good things we do, by the character, by literally who we are. 
Let's go back to one more time to this verses 43 through 45 and, and you'll see it come together. That's what Jesus is teaching. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless place seeking rest but finds none. If we have something, whether it's an unclean spirit, whether it's whatever struggle that we're at, and if we get rid of it and we, you know, we, what, and we say, I will return to the house I've come and it finds a house empty and swept and put in order, we get rid of our house is empty. If there's no spiritual power in there, it leaves us vulnerable because something's gonna fill that vacuum. And so that it goes and it brings it with it seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of the person is worse than the first. See, if we're just focused on removing the bad behavior, our character isn't changed and we're just holding back what's in us. But the Bible teaches us that God wants to change who we are. What we do is an expression of who we are. I, I, I do sinful things because of a sinful heart. And God doesn't want just to clean out the sinful behavior. He wants to clean out the sinful heart and then fill us, fill me with the presence of, of his presence in my life, his influence to change who I am. It's an idea that's actually taught throughout the Bible, this idea that we're filled with God's presence. Look, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? That we have God living in us. You are not your own. Uh, you were brought with a price, so glorify God with your body. So because he is in us, therefore we should live differently because we're filled with him. Following Christ and trusting him in all areas of life means that again, that we not only repent from evil, but that we seek to fill our lives with him that we invite him into, the, into our house, in a sense, as the one who fills us. But ultimately, it's, it's something that happens through relationship with Jesus. This changed character is through relationship with Jesus. Now, this is not only what you see here in, in 43 through 45, when he talks about being filled with this, you know, this, this um, filled with his presence, but it also then is what, what makes sense. When you look at 46 through 50, it doesn't seem to connect. And when you see this, you're gonna see that it does. Look what he says. When he was still speaking, so he's connecting it to what he's just said. Behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my brother, mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother, here are my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. And basically he's putting it in this context into what he's saying, what does it mean to be filled? It means to have a relationship. Not, not a blood relationship that you're born, that you know, it's not that, that, that literally his mother and his brothers, it's not them, but because they do the will of my father, because they have a relationship with us, because the Bible speaks literally about a relationship with God in family terms, consistently. And so what he's saying is, no, what do we wanna do is we wanna understand the gospel, and if we understand the gospel, we realize that we have a relationship with God who then fills us and changes us. I love 1 Corinthians 2.2. Paul says, I decided to know nothing amongst you except Christ and him crucified. That's that's my life first. Because it defines how we come to relationship with God. How do we become part of God's family? What is the gospel? The gospel is that we admit that we're sinners, that we can't fix ourselves, that we we agree with God that, okay, you know, I'm a sinner and, and, you know, I can't make myself righteous. But we realize that's why Jesus came to die on the cross. So I confess my sins, I ask Jesus to forgive me. God, take my sins, forgive me through what Jesus did on the cross and he not only forgives us, but then he gives us his righteousness. He makes us right and holy with him. He literally adopts us, he not only forgives us in a sense, takes us out of the slavery, but he adopts us and makes us part of his family. And the Bible teaches that idea throughout. 
Look, for example, John 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, not those who are born. It's not just, you know, mother and, you know, who are my brothers? It's not those that are physically born, not of blood or of the will, but of flesh, but of the will of, uh, or the will of man, but of God. It's because we receive him, because we believe in him, then we are a part of that family. Have you ever done that? Or look, for example, in Galatians 3, he ties together this idea of becoming part of the family with being filled. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. In Christ, in faith in Jesus, we become sons of God. We're part of his family through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. For when we do that, embrace Christ, we are put on Christ. We have him in us. Okay, that's how we come into this family. But then how do we experience that power? How do we experience his life-changing power so that he sweeps open the, you know, sweeps open the, or clean the house and, then, and fills us with something that allows us to have ultimate victory? Well, that's where I'm gonna go back to 1 Corinthians 2, where we're filled with Christ, where we, we, you know, we basically say, God, I, I get rid of this and I put you in charge. I in, invite you to be Lord of my life and, and I give you the, you know, the right to have that power, this greater power that overcomes anything. And think about what 1 Corinthians 2 says. 2-2, again, I said my favorite verse, I decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know what that's saying? The way that you come to Christ is the way that you grow in Christ. And Paul's not saying, well, I'm just staying with the simple gospel and I'm never getting beyond that. No, what he's saying is, this is the whole gospel. This is something you could explain in five minutes and you'll spend your whole life trying to figure it out and apply it to all the areas of your life and you'll still be learning. Because what does it mean? Take an area of struggle. Let's go back to where we started with addictions and okay, what does that mean? Why is the AA built on the gospel? Because all it's doing is taking the power of Christ, Christ and him crucified and saying, okay, Christ, I, Jesus, I ask you to forgive me, but now I have this one area, I have this addiction, I have this struggle that I can't defeat. I agree with you, it's bigger than me. I cannot defeat it. I, I ask you to forgive me. I recognize that Jesus died on the cross for the sins and I ask you to not only forgive me, but to give me righteousness in this area, to give me strength in this area, to help me to apply your power in this area so that you fill me, you not only empty me of the problem, but you fill me and you make me righteous. You give me strength that I do not have. That's what it means to live out the gospel. It's literally just learning to apply every area, you know, the gospel to every area of life. And there may be some here where you say, okay, have you ever accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Today may be the day to do that. And they say, okay, if I've never done that, it's an invitation. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. For others, it may be a day where you say, okay, man, I've done that and, and I'm struggling with this. And, and, and I feel like, okay, God, I, I you know, swept this clean and I keep getting it filled and I keep, well, part of that is, some of that might be saying, okay, are you really applying the gospel to that area? Are you doing it on your own and asking God to help you? Or are you basically saying, God, I agree with you, I can't. Teach me what it means to surrender this to the gospel because I need you to transform me, to give me strength that I do not have. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day and we'll see you next week.